Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. Welcome to CICAST, the Collegium Institute's podcast series. I'm Fariba Kanga, a doctoral student in French and Francophone studies here at the University of Pennsylvania. Today we have with us Rémi Brague, who is Professor Emeritus of Arabic and Religious Philosophy at the Sorbonne and the former Romano Guardini Chair of Philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Professor Brague is the author of countless books and articles. His most recent book, The Legitimacy of the Human, was published in 2017 by St. Augustine Press and translated into English by Paul Seaton. In 2012, he won the Ratzinger Prize in Theology, named after Joseph Ratzinger, better known today as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Thank you, Professor Bragg, for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome. I thank you. I'm flattered to be there. In your most recent book, The Legitimacy of the Human, you address modern challenges to humanism, particularly in the environmental movement. What is humanism, and why do some people consider it a threat? Well, that's quite a tall order. You know, the word humanism is a flag under which a great deal of different wares are uh, navigating. Well, first of all, we call by the name of humanism a historical movement, i.e. the movement of recovery of the Greek classical heritage that took place, say, in the 15th century, mainly in Florence, and that spread all over Europe. Well, ever since, and probably, well, never really stopped. We mean by the same word something completely different, i.e. this typically modern and even late modern stance according to which the human, okay, humanism, well, uh, stems from human, uh, obviously, which is the adjective that corresponds to human being, to man and woman. And now, humanism in this other uh, meaning designates uh, an intellectual stance according to which there is nothing above human beings. Human beings are supposed to be able to develop autonomously to find by themselves the rules uh, which they will have to abide by in order to reach the fulfillment of their own humanity. And well, it's an interesting historical coincidence that those two meanings uh, were coined, that the word that corresponds to those two meanings were coined approximately at the same date, i.e. 1840, as a historical category and as a philosophical attitude, what we call at present, in order to be more precise, exclusive humanism, i.e., care for the human, excluding whatever uh, could pretend uh, to have a higher uh, rank on the ladder of beings than man. And this happened as the very enterprise of late modern atheism. And for this reason, in Victorian England, where atheism was hardly the thing, you know, you were supposed to be Christian, regardless (laughs) of your personal faith or lack of it. And for this reason, several words were, well, created or uh, got a new shade of meaning in order to uh, express the same idea uh, as atheism, but in milder 
terms, in terms that could be made palatable for uh, the Victorian sensibility. There's agnosticism, which was coined by uh, Thomas Huxley, the well-known Darwin's mm -hmm. bulldog, in a memorable uh, meeting of the Metaphysical Society in 1869. There was secularism, an invention of a fellow who is now almost totally forgotten by the name of Holy Oak, Holy Oak, George Holy Oak, who was, among other things, a pioneer in the development of uh, contraception. That's an interesting coincidence, you know. Uh, okay, secularism and secularity and the, the duration of a century, uh, those are ideas that have something to do with each other in a subterranean way. And, well, among those words, uh, uh, introduced into the uh, vocabulary of the English language in order to replace the uh, hateful uh, word atheism, there was humanism. And in present-day British English, it might be the case here in the States as well, but I don't know, in present-day British English, uh, when you say, uh, well, uh, in the Commission there will be Christian and humanist people, this means, well, people who are Christians and people who are uh, card-carrying atheists as well. That wasn't always the case, though, right? Because I think about in the 16th century and in the 15th in Italy, when we talk about Renaissance humanism mm -hmm. that returned to the classical sources, there were Christian humanists. But I think we're using the term differently, right? We're not talking about humanism well, in the Victorian sense. Well, that's, again, a complicated matter, you know. Uh, people at the Renaissance did not consider that they pleaded uh, uh, on behalf of a humanism. They would call themselves humanists. But the word had a precise meaning. A humanist was a teacher of classical languages. It was a, a profession like, uh, well, plumber or dentist. Okay, you were a humanist. And, well, uh, our, uh, our interpretation, our present-day interpretation of Renaissance humanism suffers from uh, uh, the fact that we sort of foist on those poor people hmm, our typically modern and exclusively modern conception of what humanism is all about. In fact, well, you spoke of a Christian humanism in the Renaissance. There was no other kind of humanism as the Christian one, together with uh, its equivalent uh, in the Jewish communities. I'm thinking in particular of Azaria de Rossi, who was this Italian rabbi, you know, who sort of uh, reintroduced into a Jewish culture what had been expelled from it, uh, well, at the beginning of the, of the Talmudic era, i.e. Uh, the Hellenized uh, Judaism, uh, the works of people like Flavius Josephus, the historian, mm. or Philo of Alexandria, the philosopher. Those people wrote in Greek, were steeped in Greek culture, and tried to express uh, the truths of Judaism well, through the vocabulary, through the conceptual system of Greek philosophy. And, well, Azaria de Rossi could be very, very easily be called a humanist because he was interested in classical languages and not only in Hebrew. But this has nothing to do with the claim of uh, an exclusive uh, autonomy, the so-called autonomy uh, of mankind vis-à-vis -vis, uh, higher powers, and in particular vis-à-vis uh, -vis the Creator God. Uh, our understanding of humanism suffers a great deal, as I told you, under this uh, prejudice in favor of uh, a theism considered as being more progressive than other casts of mind and other, uh, well, in ways for people to interpret their presence in the world and the very existence of the world. When we look at what those people were trying to do, well, we can see that they wanted to sort of reconcile, to reconcile uh, with ancient culture the Christian message. 
And just think of a late, relatively late from the point of view of the story, of the history of, uh, of, the, of the Renaissance, like Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam. Well, he is considered to be something of a libertine in the 18th century meaning of the term, or already in the 17th century meaning, i.e. Uh, some sort of uh, a skeptic uh, who uh, tries to uh, distance himself from the orthodox teaching of the church. Well, this fellow spent two-thirds of his time in publishing critical editions not only of the New Testament, but of the fathers of the church, you know. He was a patristic scholar, first and foremost. The rest, well, the uh, praise of folly, for instance, mm -hmm. well, that's almost a joke, you know, which he wrote uh, as an homage to uh, his uh, uh, old pal, Thomas, uh, Thomas Morris, exactly. And the Latin title, Encomium Moriae, is evidently an allusion to the name of Thomas More. And well, he was impressed, Erasmus, by what we call at present the English humor. Thomas More was a master in this field, you know, and he impressed this uh, rather dull Dutchman uh, who was Erasmus. And Erasmus, well, wrote this in order to, uh, well, as, as a gift of sorts to, to his old friend. For him, it was not that important. You know, what was really important was his work as a philologist. And as a philologist, he was interested, first and foremost, in the fathers of the church. But that's very different from how humanism today, we use it in the 19th century sense of there's nothing higher than Absolutely. human. Absolutely. But there are people who uh, bring back to our memory this aspect. Uh, for instance, there's in Harvard an excellent scholar by the name of James Hankins who works first and foremost on Marsilio Ficino. Mm -hmm. I don't know how this name is to be pronounced in English, Ficino or something like that. Right. Well, uh, this uh, fellow was a uh, translator. Uh, he translated Plato, uh, the whole of Plato, the, the, all the dialogues from Greek into Latin. He translates Plotinus, which is a real feat of scholarship. You know, the Greek of Plotinus and the very thought of Plotinus is awfully difficult. You know? And today, uh, present-day philologists, the people who made this critical edition of Plotinus's Enneads, from time to time, well, in the footnote, tell us how Ficino had understood the text. And that's a source, you know, for the uh, for establishing the text that has almost as great a value as the manuscripts. And Ficino was a translator, a physician, mm -hmm. and a priest. A priest. You know? His aim was to reconcile Platonism and Christianity, to uh, build a Christian Platonism of sorts. And while well, he was up to a point pretty successful for his time, well, at present we find those uh, attempts as a thesis, well, rather awkward, in, in any case incomplete. But for his time and for his own intention, what he really wanted to do, uh, this was deeply Christian. So now that we have established all of the different meanings of the term humanism over the centuries, um, let's talk about the title of your book, The Legitimacy of the Human. So how do concerns about the legitimacy of humanity go beyond questions concerning human dignity? So how is human legitimacy different or similar to human dignity? What's at stake? Uh, well, human dignity uh, takes for granted that there will be human beings and that defending the existence of those human beings on the surface of the earth is something that has to be done because man or human beings, man and women, man and woman have a an intrinsic worth. You know, their worth is not something that we give them. We simply acknowledge that they already possess something like a worth. Good. 
Now, it's the case at present that we have sort of to uh, uh, get uh, deeper uh, into the question, since we are no longer allowed for granted that human dignity is a fact. We have to show to what extent and for which reason, for okay, uh, uh, from what kind of sources we can deduce something like the human dignity. Well, I was given the opportunity this very uh, midday uh, to uh, uh, put my finger on some difficulties that we encounter at present when we want to ground something like the legitimacy of the human. Well, uh, perhaps I should have um, sketched, uh, well, as briefly as possible, the evolution of the idea of humanism. Well, let me do that, but sure, yes. uh, uh, I'll really step on it. Well, first, uh, human beings are different from all other living beings. Okay. Second step, human beings are not only different from, but superior to. And this for various reasons. They are more powerful, more, more skillful, more cunning, or they, are, they realize uh, to the utmost degree the intentions of nature. Man is sort of the masterpiece of nature. You find that in ancient Greece. In Christian thought, in the fathers of the church and later on in the Middle Ages, man has no special dignity in himself, but he has received a huge amount of dignity, if I may so speak, because the Son of God, the Word of God, became a man and not, well, a squirrel or, right. or a donkey. Okay. Right. And then he gave uh, the well the whole of mankind a nobility which it could not possibly have possessed earlier. Third step: man does not only well, I mean human beings. Yeah, human beings do not only possess a dignity, be that dignity the result of the workings of nature or of the gracious intervention of God but they must show their mettle and they must show that they are more powerful than the rest of the created beings by dominating them, by becoming their lord, by lording it over them. And that's the problem, right? So the, there are some in that's environmentalists are seeing that as a threat, is that? That's one of the problems, perhaps not the only one. Okay, this was the third step of uh, uh, the development of the humanistic idea. And the fourth and last step is what I called a while ago exclusive humanism, i.e. there is nothing better than human beings. There is no God in particular. Nature is something that we have to rule out from the outset. Nature is out of court uh, as a source of value. We have to give it value, to give it meaning by controlling it, by becoming lords and possessors of nature, to quote a well-known sentence by the French philosopher René Descartes, who had, by the way, borrowed all this intuition from uh, a fellow from the other side of the channel, Francis Bacon, the Chancellor of England, who, uh, as soon as the first years of the 17th century, launched this program, uh, this enterprise of a conquest of nature grounded on the uh, achievements of modern science which was all the, uh, all the cheekier uh, that uh, this was not possible. This became, this became possible at the beginning of the 19th century with a so-called industrial revolution when uh, a modern uh, science, modern physics, modern chemistry, uh, in this case, was applied to the industry 
of colors, you know, how to dye a garment. Okay, and they had to do that with plants earlier, and well, they learned to synthesize colors and dye them and launch them on the market of, of mass industrial production. Well, those four steps mm -hmm. are at present called into doubt by the ecological movement, which tells us, well, dominating nature is bad. Dominating nature is bad. You are spoiling uh, the environment. You are making life impossible, not only for the human species, but for whatever is living on the surface of the earth. Man is not better than the other living beings, but it might be the case that it is worse, worse because it's the universal predator. You know, lions eat, well, say, uh, well, other uh, kinds of animals. Uh, men eat, eat up everything, and they live everywhere. They have no ecological niche for them to live in. They must spread all over the earth. Like parasites, a, right? The image is the image of a parasite. Your humans are being compared. Uh, well, many living beings are parasites. One could even say that the animal, all the animals are parasites of the plants. Right. You know? <laughs> Only the plants succeed in transforming minerals into uh, living substances. And the other living beings have to prey on the poor plants. Well, uh, uh, man is not better but were rather worse than the other living beings. And the last step in the, well, you'll pardon the, the badly educated word, uh, the last step in the deconstruction, in the deconstruction <laughs> of the humanistic idea, is the idea according to which there is no real difference between human beings and the other living beings. And this is, there's a whole tendency, you know, in contemporary research, uh, research the results of which are outside of my field of competence. You know, I can't say that's false. On the contrary, I admire the results right. of those people. But what I call into doubt uh, is the, uh, well, the atmosphere you know, that surrounds all that, some sort of self-denigration of, uh, of the human some sort of, uh, well, gnawing doubt about oneself. Are we that good? Are we that interesting? Are we that different? There's some sort of a despair of humankind uh, towards, uh, well, towards itself, as a matter of fact. I could even speak of some self-hatred. Mm. But a self-hatred that is sort of compensated by the feeling of superiority that people who have understood that man is not that good feel towards the rest of benighted mankind who still sticks to the idea of a human superiority over creation. You never can get rid of a feeling of superiority without regaining another feeling of superiority at another level. Some very extreme environmentalists see mm -hmm. humanity, start to question the legitimacy of humanity, mm -hmm. especially because of humanity's uh, destructive force mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. um, in your book, you demonstrate the link between the death of God, or at least you know the idea of God mm -hmm. in the 20th century with someone like Nietzsche, mm -hmm. and the death of man that results. Where is the link? What is the nature of this link between... It, well, very strict atheism and well, first, the death of man. first of all, uh, you mentioned the name of Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was probably not that original a philosopher as he claimed to be and as his disciples claim him to have been. But he has some sort of synthesis of, uh, well, let's say the main intellectual currents of the 19th century. But he has a hu the huge talent, and this can't be uh, gainsaid, you know, he has the talent of expressing what, uh, well, 
was sort of in the air, you know, the, the, the overall sensibility of an epoch like the 19th century, they could bring that uh, into some pithy formulas. And well, there are two formulas. Uh, one you've just been quoting about God is dead. And the other one, uh, which has a strong link with this first one, is man is a being that must be overcome. We must go beyond man. Mm. And while he expresses himself in an ambiguous way, from time to time he says it is a necessity for us to overcome man. And in some other context, he says it is a moral duty. Well, you know, there are uh, well auxiliary verbs in German that express this idea. Uh, we, uh, well, the, the English can do the same thing. Eh? We must overcome, uh, uh, well, humanity, uh, must mm -hmm. overcome man, and we should, we ought to overcome him. Okay. Uh, what is the link? Well, once we can't make uh, the worth of the human depend on something higher, on somebody, for that matter, in this case, on somebody higher than himself, man is sort of left in the lurch. Mm -hmm. Man doesn't know uh, what is good for him, doesn't know whether it is good for him to keep existing or to simply close the shop. And for this reason, uh, he will be tempted to look for some self, uh, not self-fulfillment, but rather self-overcoming, self-overcoming in the direction of uh, some higher, either some higher being or some higher level of existence. Well, some uh, towards some higher being. Well, this was very much in the air when uh, uh, when uh, Nietzsche wrote. You know, mm. Darwin. Darwin wrote in 1859. Okay, the origin of species, and in 1871, the descent of man. And the whole intellectual atmosphere of Europe was dominated at this time by Darwinian categories and at the same time by categories that had been borrowed from the philosophy of the German philosopher Schopenhauer, okay. who has a very negative vision of being. And we are there because we were, we, we, we human beings, we are there because we were sort of caught in a trap. We were lured into existence by the will by the, by the unconscious will with a, with a capital W, let's say some sort of metaphysical power that sort of compels uh, whatever exists to jump uh, into, uh, uh, into existence, into an existence which will be, in the case of man, uh, a permanent seesaw between uh, suffering and boredom. As soon as we cease to suffer, we get stiff bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Schopenhauer. Okay. And well, uh, and, uh, as far as Nietzsche and Darwin, uh, as far as their relationship is concerned, well, uh, Nietzsche flirted with the idea of Darwin in the Zarathustra, his masterpiece, poetical masterpiece. Well, he says uh, he has his uh, prophet of sorts, Zarathustra, mm -hmm. tell uh, the people, you have made the stretch from worm to man. Okay, that's a very clear allusion to the Darwin. to the popular vision of evolution. Right. Why wouldn't you go further towards the over-man? 
So that's the Superman. The, uh, the classical, the, the received translation is rather overman. You know, we uh, tend to avoid Superman because of the comics. Oh, sure, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the name uh, has been uh, taken by this uh, uh, fellow who puts uh, uh, his underpants on his pants. <laughs> yeah? Yes. Okay. And in order not to be ridiculous, we prefer to speak of overman. That's the way in which the first English translators... Okay. rendered the, the German Übermensch. Well, this uh, gives evidence of a deep dissatisfaction mm -hmm. of man. You know? And well, this dissatisfaction uh, well, is highly understandable and sort of even laudable. We know that we are not what we should be. Right. But there are several ways for us to get off the hook either by, well, committing some sort of suicide. And one way for us to commit suicide would be to <laughs> cease to be men in order to become something different, mm -hmm. something, something, let's hope, superior, better, I don't know, I'm afraid um, the enhanced man wouldn't be necessarily better in a moral sense of the word. He probably would be smarter, more powerful, mm -hmm. but I doubt that uh, the intentions of the people who would recast uh, uh, humankind into a new form are uh, morally pure. Uh, I'm afraid they would give him uh, the greatest possible power, intellectual powers, and, well, the, the stamina that go with it, but uh, whether it will be in order to uh, do good, I would doubt. But would this doubt. dissatisfaction with mm -hmm. humanity really stems from a lack of a metaphysics. Uh, well, ultimately... Yes, but there's a great deal of intermediary steps, you know. Uh, when I plead uh, on behalf of the recovery of the, what I call the metaphysical anchorage uh, of, of uh, humankind, uh, well, I'm not uh, meaning that each and every human being could go to Metaphysics 101 and then uh, do higher metaphysics. <laughs> There is a, an implicit metaphysics in the fact that we affirm that life is good. This is a metaphysical thesis, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a word of art for this, uh, a rather a complicated one in medieval philosophy. That's the convertibility of the transcendentals. Okay, I'll explain. I'll explain. The transcendentals are those properties of being that transcend the normal categories, you distinguish the category of substance, I am a man. The category of quality, mm -hmm. I am a white man. The category of quantity, I am, uh, well, five feet and something uh, uh, tall and so on. Okay, there are different qualities. And now there are ideas, there are notions that are to be found in each and every quality. For instance... The idea of goodness, well, what is substantially good, what is the good in person is God. Mm -hmm. What is the, quality, the, the good in the category of quality? Virtue. Virtue. Being just, being uh, patient, being courageous, being, and so on and so forth. What is good in the category of quality is the right size. Neither too big nor too small, just the right size. Well, there are several qualities like that, i.e. the good, being, or uh, I can say I am a man, I am white, I am uh, tall, or for that matter, in this case, small. Okay, I possess all those qualities that can be expressed by means of the verb to be. And to be is to be found in all the categories. Good is to be found in all the categories. True is to be found in all the categories. It is true that I am a man. It is true that I am white. It is true that I am uh, rather on the smallish side. And so on and so forth. And well, the convertibility of transcendentals implies 
that whatever is, is good. A tall order, when we look uh, at uh, all the, the horrible things that take place in this world, but uh, it is a metaphysical thesis that, you know, that all whatever is, is in itself, regardless whether we make a good or a bad use of it, good. The fire is good in spite of uh, <coughs> of uh, uh, fires that, uh, well, uh, that we, we have to put out, that, that the fire brigade has to put out. But in itself, fire is good. So humans, by the same token, are good even though we can get Nazis and other tyrants. Uh, well, the problem is precisely that people can become Nazis, right. can become tyrants, but mm -hmm. they are not from the outset, uh, when the core of their being, uh, well, rotten. You, you are never belief. rotten to the core. You can become, unfortunately. This is the depth, the awful depth, the awe-inspiring depth of human freedom. You know, the, the abyss. Uh, inside of each of us, each of us, I could very well have become a Nazi. Uh, just think of uh, uh, the late uh, German Chancellor uh, Helmut Kohl, you know, who never was a Nazi, and he said, "Well, I never was a Nazi because of the grace of a late birth." Well, he meant thereby that when the Nazis seized the power, he was a toddler. Mm, right. And at the end of, uh, of the war, well, he was 10 years old. And he had the humility to say, well, if I never was a Nazi, this is first and foremost because I was never exposed to the temptation. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know what we would have done if we, well, had been put uh, uh, to the trial, probably we would have yielded. And this is a deep wisdom of uh, uh, the our Father, and the prayer, our Father, do not lead us into temptation. For when we are led into temptation, mm -hmm. uh, more often than not, we yield. <laughs> but, but it's not the material world that would tell us that humans are good. That is something we have to have implicit faith in. Oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, there are glimpses of this uh, intrinsic, of this internal goodness of what is, and this is beauty. This is beauty. Uh, and by the way, there, are, there were some medieval philosophers who ranked beauty among those uh, notions uh, which I've been just alluding to, the transcendentals. Mm -hmm. Whatever is, is in itself beautiful. And well, that's the old wisdom of the Boy Scouts. You know, when you look at an insect, uh, and a filthy creature, and we look at it carefully, when you abstract from the feeling of the disgust that it can well, elicit in you, well, you'll see it's well done. That works a, flea, a flea is well done. In itself. I used to study entomology, so I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely agree. Well, that's good for you. Um, so, now that we are, you know, thinking you about... You have a bee in the bonnet. Uh, I did work with some honeybees. And not only bees, but all kind of insects. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So now that we're talking about, you know, the necessity of a metaphysics, um, mm -hmm. near the end of the book, you become, you, you particularly address the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. um, which gets me to thinking about um, Ratzinger's theology in particular, um, because I noted certain references to some of Ratzinger's thought, mm -hmm. um, particularly his work on creation mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and his introduction to Christianity. <laughs> So, uh, as I said earlier in the introduction, uh, in 2012, you won the Ratzinger Prize in Theology. Um, so, how has Josef Ratzinger's thought guided your work over the years? Well, first of all, you should remember that I was 10 years long a professor uh, in a German university, and more precisely in a Bavarian university, and still more precisely at the University of Munich. Mm. 
And for this reason, well, I sort of flatter myself with a smile, you know, to be some sort of colleague. <laughs> well, Ratzinger and my humble self were sort of colleagues, you know. We worked in the same institution, in the same country, in the same language. And, uh, well, I can recognize, I can admire in him, you know, the, what is best in, a, in the German academic tradition i.e. Uh, a, 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 an utterly uh, uh, honest uh, practice of intellectual research, saying where you have found this quotation or that allusion to uh, some author and so on trying to be as clear as possible when you explain something to your students, trying to present your thoughts in an orderly way. What come, what first things first, and, and okay, and so on. Yeah. Well, for me, Ratzinger uh, is a model of uh, the way in which you can be at the same time deep and clear. You know this, the way he can reconcile depth and clarity of expression is for me absolutely exemplary. And for this reason, I admire him, well, immensely, immensely, you know. And, well, he showed exactly the same qualities when he was made a pope against his will. Oh, the poor fellow, just look at his grin, you know, when he was photographed, he hated the yeah. idea of being a, a star of sorts, you know. He had this kind of, uh, uh, how could I put it, there, there's a, 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 a Spanish expression, sonrisa de conejo, you know, the, the uh, smile of a rabbit, you know, <laughs> the, this involuntary grin. Okay, but what he did, uh, what he wrote, and the way he managed so many very tricky questions is great. Unfortunately, well, for some reason, he had not the same uh, uh, aura, uh, the same uh, radiance, as, uh, for instance, John Paul II. John Paul II was a player, you know, he was on the stage. Well, Pope Francis too. Pope Francis too, not in the same style. Right. Ratzinger was absolutely not a, a player, mm -hmm. you know, he uh, was happy in his, uh, in his office among his books or playing the piano. And so it's the intellectual aspect of Ratzinger that is really inspired you? Well, uh, I sort of plied the same trade, you know. Uh, well, I'm not as good as he is, but uh, that's the same kind, that's the same uh, same job. Yeah, the same job. And for, for me, he is uh, an example. I remember, for instance, we organized <coughs> in uh, 1999 in order to celebrate, you know, the new millennium, a uh, meeting of sorts in Paris, uh, the name was, uh, the, the, the title, you know, of the bench was uh, 2,000 years after what? Question mark. Mm. For everybody was speaking of uh, 2,000, 2,000, 2,000, but nobody had the pluck to say in our beautifully secular hexagonal country, uh, France, I mean, uh, 2,000 years after Christ. Christ was the word that had to be avoided at all costs. And we tried, thanks to this uh, meeting, to put it again at the center of the reflection. And now, <clears throat> we invited uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was then prefect of the Congregation uh, for Faith, and he gave a lecture 
that was a well that could have been put into a glass case and and uh, <laughs> uh, as a model you know of what is to be done as a model of intellectual probity and this was all the funnier that the orator who had spoken before him well a lady but it's not because she was a lady had given a totally preposterous paper you know totally preposterous and the scene was the following one we were in the sorbonne which is the uh, well the the herd of what we call laicite you know, the independence of the church from the state and we were listening for the great inquisitor we were listening to the great inquisitor giving us <laughs> a lesson of academic probity showing us by his example how a university lecturer should behave right in contradistinction to the former orator who had made a fool of well in this case herself well it could have been himself and it's not because he was a lady but because she well okay was not up to the up to the task Well anyway you know I'm a university professor and I admire a colleague I see in Ratzinger well now the uh, Pope Emeritus Benedictus the 16th a colleague whom I can admire and try to imitate and endeavor to 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 imitate So we have time for one um, more question in what ways can western religious thought in general and because this is collegium the catholic tradition in particular contribute to a humanism that is also environmentally conscious ah, well as far as we partake in the christian intellectual tradition we partake in the biblical tradition in a whole as a whole and well the the new testament is some sort of commentary uh, on the old testament mm-hmm. you know, the new covenant is a reactualization of the old covenant in the light of a new event a, a path breaking and breath taking event which is the incarnation of the word i.e. jesus of nazareth his life teaching death and resurrection and well those events are the seal that legitimate the whole of creation we have to recover a deeper understanding of what it means that the world was created most unfortunately the word creation Uh, was sort of kidnapped by uh, well people who call themselves creationists and who are uh, well not that intelligent <laughs> for two reasons first because they have a most naive literal reading of the account of creation at the beginning of the bible you know they take this as a history Right. of the formation of the cosmos mm-hmm. whereas the intention of the biblical writer was not this but an explanation about the part played by human beings in creation mm-hmm. in the well in the, the the whole scheme of things in the the whole show as the idiom has it the second reason is that they uh, well try to ground their uh, uh, point of view on bogus science right bogus science i mean they in my opinion they fail on both uh, uh, boards you know they play chess badly on two boards and know? that's important to keep in mind because a lot of times the emphasis is on the bad science but it's also bad religion as well this is bad religion as well 
And this is bad, reli bad religion, you know, is something dangerous. That's not something we can play with and uh, uh, get uh, uh, scot-free from it after we have played with fire. Right. Bad religion degenerates into ideology, and ideology can, de and very often degenerates into, well, crime, <laughs> uh, into, uh, well, most horrible things. Well, I won't say that people who call themselves creationists are Nazis, well, to be sure. Right, that's, sure. That's, that's, it would be quite stupid. But, I mean, generally meaning false religion or badly understood religion, well, can, first of all, leads to stupidity, to intellectual stupidity. Right? But good religion. But good religion. Can really help. Uh, is helpful. Is helpful. Uh, if we recognize that the environment, that the Earth, well, uh, whether we have a pool on other planets, other, another <laughs> question, but for the time being, let's limit ourselves to our Mother Earth, if we consider that it has an intrinsic goodness, that its goodness does not depend mm -hmm. on the way in which we exploit it as a query of natural of or as a, a battery you know a a, a tank of energy a, or a tank of a, a matter or things you know, that we can put to our use then we'll have uh, will be induced to respect it okay. and to respect it as the work of a loving god not as uh, well something that just happens to be there and in which we were put uh, by some uh, unknown uh, uh, power and that we have to cope with as uh, well as well as we can yeah? the very idea of creation implies uh, respect for what we are not and not only self-respect. It's interesting, by the way, to note that self-respect has very much to deal with the idea that we are created. Um, a, 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 an attempt at putting oneself on the throne of being very slowly degenerates into self-hatred. I um, alluded to that already. Right, you know? yes. Well, thank you, Professor oh, Bragg, for welcome. your time. Um, this was a truly stimulating conversation. Well, it was stimulating for me. <laughs> we also thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. If you would like to take part in the discussion or get in touch, you can follow Collegium on social media. Thank you. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.